G'day mates, I'm Brett Dillon and this is The Movie Chronicles. This episode, we're following some right galahs in Australia from 1920. History was sort of like a sheila you wanted a leg over, but were too bung to talk to. On January the 22nd, the National Country Party of Australia was formed. In 1972, it changed its name to National Country Party and, in 1982, in line with conservative thought, changed the name again to National Party of Australia, as evidence of the fascism underlying conservative thought. Only one company represents the nation. April the 2nd. Edward, Prince of Wales, reached Australian shores to thank the nation for the role it played in World War I. Given the slaughter that occurred during this period, he is received with mixed feelings. April the 22nd, the High Court of Australia ruled that, where consistent with state and federal law, federal law shall have the supremacy. This is hardly a surprising ruling, but at least now the matter is clarified. June. Adelaide and Perth have their wettest month until 1992. August 31st. The High Court ruled that the decisions of the Commonwealth Conciliation and Arbitration Court were binding on state governments. Canny listeners will have noticed the federal government is excluded from the ruling. October the 30th. Sydney became the foundational city for the Communist Party of Australia. Being promiscuous by nature, more than one red is found in bed. November the 16th. Winton became the founding city of the Queensland and Northern Territory Aerial Service. The service later transmogrified into Qantas. December the 3rd. The first aerial flight between Melbourne and Perth is celebrated. She ain't all shit and sunshine in the lucky country, guys, as you'll find out in Breaking the Drought. Director, script, and director of photography, Franklin Barrett. Script, Jack North. Actors, Charles Beetham, Rawdon Blandford, Trilby Clark, John Faulkner, Ethel Henry, Marie Lavar, Nan Taylor, and Dustin Webb. On what seems, on first viewing, a bizarre colour choice, the film is tinted in sepia and green. Sepia is for the brownness of the drought, and green comes to symbolise a number of things, which is why I feel on first viewing this choice is very bizarre. The drought is both physical and metaphysical in nature. It was its depiction, particularly the sight of rotting cattle corpses, that got director Franklin Barrett in trouble. Our heroes live in the drought-stricken outback farm of Wallaby Station. Joe Galloway owns the farm, his daughter Marjorie helps out, while son Gilbert is studying at uni. University to you. Gilbert is studying to be a doctor. 
The family's neighbour is Tom Wattleby. We first see him rounding up horses to ship them off to India. A late addition to the characters is Damper. He works at Wallaby Station and is the comic relief. Tom, although interested in Marjorie, cannot woo her because of a youthful mistake that isn't explained until the third act. This is a narrative mistake because it implies coincidence resolves the plot. If the coincidence occurs early in the plot, then we can see it has little to do with the resolution of the plot, and events can play out as consequences from human foibles. Things have got so bad on Wallaby Station due to the drought that trees are being cut down to provide feed for the stock, which seems to be a surprising mix of sheep, goats, cattle, and horses. Joe is sending as much money as he can to ensure Gilbert completes his studies. Gilbert, however, has fallen into the bad company of Varsi Littleton, a blackguard. Varsi introduces Gilbert to Olive Lorette, a woman of pleasure. The pair plan to milk Gilbert of every penny he has. The seduction scene uses cigarettes as a metaphor for a blowjob, and the censor didn't even notice. Gilbert is blown away and falls under Olive's spell. One month later, Gilbert and Varsi visit Wallaby Station. Varsi is so certain of his hold on Gilbert that Tom is able to hear him give a little blackmail going on. He pays off Gilbert's debt of £67. Margaret learns all about this, at which point you'd think she'd keep closer tabs on Gilbert. Varsi, never one to let a chance pass him by, steals Ma's checkbook. An unspecified amount of time later. Damper is on the bones of his ass, as Wallaby Station can no longer pay him. He becomes a swagman until reaching the big city where Gilbert hires him. Gilbert, now a doctor, has set himself up with Olive. But it is a life of IOUs. Varsi has him forging Ma's signature on the checks. Gilbert, now desperate, begs home for £500 so he can move to South Africa. It's bad timing. The drought has continued, and the bank is demanding payment on the overdraft. Ma and Pa are in town to try and sort the matter out. Pa begins to suspect trouble when Gilbert won't let them stay at his apartment and discover Olive is his mistress. Pa notices a woman's hat in the apartment, and just to make sure the connection is made, the hat is in the shape of a breast. He's a bit hurt that, after all the support he and Ma have shown him, Gilbert refuses to help them out. At the bank, they learn all of Ma's inheritance money has gone due to Gilbert's forgeries. Damper tries to help Ma and Pa, while Gilbert and Olive drive to the racetrack. They are completely ignorant of their impending doom until Marjorie warns Gilbert about his possible arrest. Gilbert decides to run away and go bush. Outraged, Pa gate-crashes a party at Gilbert's apartment. While Pa works through the party, Marjorie tries to convince Ma that she actually did sign the checks. Tom returns from India and enters this turmoil. It is Damper who updates him. 
There is the implication that some time has passed, but it is never stated. The Galloways have lost Wallaby Station to the bank and are now living in the city. They're struggling. Tom decides to support them using Damper as his proxy. Damper pretends to have inherited a fortune from a rich relative and now wants to use his wealth to help the Galloways. And now we reach Act 3. Varsi, now feeling the pinch because he doesn't have a stooge to finance him, puts the squeeze on Olive. Marjorie now works at a nightclub. Tom, hearing about this, rescues her and takes her to his apartment to rest. This is the moment he decides to sort out his youthful mistake. With the decision that he wants to marry Marjorie fresh in his mind, he sets out for Olive's apartment. After all, she is his wife, and he wants a divorce. Surprised? I certainly was. Varsi has beat him there. Varsi wants the diamonds Gilbert gave her. He murders Olive, and then throws himself out a window to see if diamonds will cushion the fall when Tom arrives. Turns out, diamonds aren't very good at this. Who knew? Now that all the loose ends are tidied up, we return to the main plot. Damper actually did have a rich uncle, who has left him a farm station to run. He appoints Joe Galloway as the manager. Joe has not forgiven Gilbert. Gilbert is a swagman in the bush when a fire breaks out. Tom goes to the rescue. Don't ask, really. Don't ask. Gilbert is recognised by his family, and all is forgiven. I'd recognise that soot anywhere! Lorraine finally arrives, along with Tom's long-delayed proposal to Marjorie. Director Franklin Barrett was born in 1873 in Lockborough, England, and he died in 1964. The director of photography of the 1911 lost or at least hard for me to find, the sea coasts of New Zealand was raised by his aunt. I haven't discovered exactly why this happened, but in the context of the time, it would appear his father was a widower who was financially stable enough to farm out his two children. Franklin became a professional violin player and amateur photographer. When he was 22, his father made him an offer he couldn't refuse. In 1895, or thereabouts, he travelled to Wellington, New Zealand, to work for his father as a clerk. His brother John was already there. In New Zealand, he seems to have travelled with professional orchestras and began his experiments in movie picture-making. It was his photography, however, that proved more remunerative. In 1901, he won £15 for his work, and he accompanied the Duke of York on his tour of Australia that year in the capacity of official photographer. The chronology becomes a little murky at this point. We know he returned to England and worked for eight months with the Charles Urban Trading Company. In this period, he directed an early science fiction movie, 1903's A Message from Mars. In 1904, he had moved to Australia, where he became the first person to film the Melbourne Cup horse race from start to finish. He then seems to have worked in live theatre until 1908, when he joined the Melbourne office of Pathé Frere. He remained when West's Pictures took over the office in 1911. During this period, I feel his most impressive feat was to build a special platform on the side of the Cook Strait Ferry in New Zealand to capture footage of the dolphin Polaris Jack in action. West's Pictures merged with Australian Films Limited in 1913. In 1914, 
Franklin visited New York City, USA, no doubt taking notes on film production there. From 1918 onwards, he was on a roll as film director until, that is, the release of The Breaking of the Drought. The realism of the drought sequences won him praise as a director, but led to a censorious clampdown in Commonwealth censorship law. The film was based on a stage play by Bland Holt that had been a hit in 1902. The film version became controversial when MP Mr. Wern felt that the depiction of the drought could be detrimental to Australia's interests overseas. Subsequently, legislation was passed by which the Minister of Customs could ban the export of material considered harmful to the Commonwealth. Drought was the first release of Franklin's company. This company folded in 1922 due to Australian Films' monopoly over film distribution. Franklin became a cinema owner and then a manager of Hoyt's Theatres Limited. The Living kept arriving in 1920. On February the 3rd, Tony Gaze, the Aussie fighter pilot who died in 2013. February the 26th, Michael Pate, Aussie actor, died 2008. March the 6th, Virgil Brennan, Aussie fighter pilot, died 1943. March the 16th, Leo McKern, Aussie actor, died 2002. March the 25th, Oriel Gray, Aussie playwright, died 2003. April the 7th, Alan Cuthbertson, Aussie actor, died 1988. September the 12th, Kevin Brennan, Aussie actor, died 1998. November the 16th, Colin Thiel, Aussie author, died 2006. December the 7th, Johnny Lockwood, Aussie actor, died 2013. Well, did my didgeridoo. Next up, we followed the adventures of The Man from Kangaroo. Director, Wilfred Lucas. Script, Beth Meredith. Director of Photography, Robert Doria. Actors, Rex Snowy Baker, Agnes Vernon, Charles Villiers, Wilfred Lucas, Walter Vincent, Malcolm McCalla, and David Edelston. This two-act film is all about the spectacular stunts Snowy Baker can perform. Plot logic rides side saddle and not very far. John Harland arrives in springtime in Kangaroo Valley. He's the substitute minister and is on probation. His first semi-official act is to teach the local boys how to box. He was a professional boxer before he became a minister. This sudden change in career is never explored and is only used as an excuse for his athleticism. Moriel Hammond is the heiress on the hill. Her guardian is Martin Giles, who plans to marry her for her money. When young Jimmy falls into the local swimming hole and nearly drowns, John treats the boys to a diving display to pad up the film runtime. Muriel and John are becoming too friendly for Martin's taste, the bitter taste of the gall of jealousy. The clincher comes when John, at this point in the narrative is a little confusing, Australia never had prohibition, but it did have licensing laws. John tells Martin that he has found out that Martin is financing the local pub. Perfectly legal if it is licensed. He threatens, close it down or I go to the police. 
The ambiguity is probably for the sake of targeting the US audience. Martin has had enough. First his ticket to financial security, then his business. He riles up the villagers against the evils of the sport of boxing. He also puts his hand down with a firm foot and orders Muriel to discontinue seeing John. This last leads to a midnight rendezvous on either side of a wall that deliberately recalls the legend of Pyramid and Thisbe. Hearing of complaints against John, the bishop hops to it and arrives in Kangaroo to adjudicate the matter. True to name, it is a kangaroo court. It is Martin who is feeding the bishop all the information. The bishop sends John to another district. Muriel finds out Martin has been defrauding her legacy and runs off. It has now become imperative for him to marry her, as a wife cannot testify against her husband. John instructs the bishop he wishes to move to a town he has heard about, after rescuing one of its citizens from a mugging and hearing how it is in need of religious reform. The town is Kalmaru, where Jack Braggan and his gang have ordered there will be no preaching within the town limits. John accepts this as a challenge. William Michaels of Bongiri Station warns John to stay at his place to avoid attack from Jack's gang. John declines the offer. Meanwhile, Muriel has escaped as far as Wurangi Station, where Jack is the leering overseer. Muriel has been looking for a safe house to live in while she investigates Martin's fraud. On the trail, the pair come across an abo tracker looking for cattle rustlers. The tracker has worked out that all the tracks of the cattle converge on Wurangi Station. When Jack threatens to harm members of his parish if he preaches, John renounces the clergy and becomes a bushman. Jack, who also works for Martin, is a bit slow on the uptake because he allows John to rescue Muriel. There is a chase, and Muriel is recaptured. She is put on a stagecoach, which leads to another thrilling chase and a leap from a bridge. Mighty fine work if you can get it. Director Wilfred Lucas was born on January 30th, 1871 in Norfolk, Ontario, Canada, and he died in 1940. Wilfred emigrated to the USA late in the 1880s, beginning a career as a singer. In this capacity, he debuted on Broadway in 1904. About 1908, he bravely took the step to appear in a Biograph studio film directed by D.W. Griffith. He was hooked on the film medium. Actress Linda Arvidsson was later to write Wilfred Rod's the first grand actor democratic enough to work in Biograph movies. He also worked for Max Sennett at Keystone Studios. Wilfred survived the transition to sound and, among other roles, played the straight man in Laurel and Hardy films. Scriptwriter Beth Meredith was born on February 12, 1890 in Buffalo, New York City, and she died in 1969. Beth began her writing career at the age of 14, crafting articles for a newspaper. As a teen, she was in vaudeville as a comedian and pianist. This talent brought her to the attention of Biograph Studio. She moved with them in 1911 to Los Angeles, the same year she met Wilfred Lucas. The pair were married in 1917. It was Wilfred who encouraged her acting career, and they embarked on a successful collaboration which included getting their own production facility unit at Universal Studios in 1914. 
In 1918, the pair moved to Australia with sportsman Snowy Baker to make films, which, some have argued, makes Beth Australia's first professional scriptwriter. By 1921, they were back in USA, but their marriage had become shaky, leading to divorce in 1927. Beth married director Michael Curtis in 1929. This led to a move to MGM, where she worked under the efficient, but not artistic, Irving Thorberg. When Irvin died, her contract was dropped, and Beth decided to retire from professional scriptwriting. Actor Rex Snowy Baker was born on February 8, 1884, in Sydney, Australia, and he died in 1953. Snowy's career began in sport. As a teenager, he was a keen boxer and swimmer. In 1904, he represented Australia in two rugby union test matches against England. In 1908, he was at the London Olympics representing Australasia (coughs) in swimming and diving. He even managed to get a medal for middleweight boxing. The athlete career came to an end in a car wreck. He then promoted boxing matches by bringing the top names in the sport to Australia. At the same time, he was building his acting career. In 1920, he left Australia for the USA to begin his career as a stunt coach in movies. He also managed a polo club for the Hollywood stars. Among the stars he coached in stunt work and horse riding, swimming and fencing were Douglas Fairbanks, Rudolf Valentino, Greta Garbo, Shirley Temple and Elizabeth Taylor. Actor Agnes Vernon was born on December 27, 1895 in La Grande, Oregon, USA, and she died in 1948. Agnes began in movies in 1914, and it is a generally unremarkable career until Snowy Baker lured her to Australia with a dream of kickstarting an Australian film industry. She made three films in Australia before heading stateside. Next episode will find us Heil and Hearty in the Germany of 1930, in which I'll give you a taste of German musicals from this period. If you have a desire to explore more silent movies, I recommend the ebook Movie Chronicles series. Become a Patreon supporter and see me blossom like a weed in a council estate. Until next time, remember, a stitch in time will probably break the clock. <laughs>